Have you ever visited a place and fallen so in love that you think to yourself, I never, ever want to leave this place? I definitely have. When I was 19 years old, I backpacked through Europe and I stopped in Venice, Italy. I still remember the feeling of stepping out into the plaza just outside the train station there. I remember seeing the boats floating along the Grand Canal, and I remember all the bustle of the tourists and the locals walking by. It was magical. I had instantly fallen in love. I spent three or four days there as a tourist, and then less than six months later, I returned to work in a hostel. What is it like to drop your life in your home country and move to a place because it just feels right? Today, we're chatting with Philip Mack. Phil is one of my best friends for life, and so it's really exciting to have him on the show. So all you alpaca pals get to know one of my favorite people. Phil and I have been friends for more than 10 years. Has it been more than 10 years? 16 years. 16 years. (laughs) Throughout our friendship, we've lived in three Canadian cities. We've traveled to five countries together. I actually don't know if that number's right either. Phil, can you fact check that? Uh, At least five. (laughs) (laughs) But our history of friendship aside, I have to brag about how accomplished he is. Phil is a talented copywriter and journalist, and he is hands down the most fashionable person I know. In fact, he now works for a luxury designer brand in London, England. And today, Phil is going to share with us what happened when he decided to leave home and move to a new country just because. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, that was so nice. (laughs) So nice to be introduced that way. (laughs) It's so nice to have you on the podcast finally after like three seasons. Okay, so I'm going to roll it back to high school. I remember even when we were in high school in Ottawa, Canada, how much you loved London. I cannot remember how old we were when you first went, I just know that it was always a favorite place of yours and you've returned so many times and now you live there, which is what we're going to chat about today. But yeah, I guess those early trips to London must have inspired you like to move there eventually. Can you tell me about your first trip there, what it was like and what it was about London that you fell so in love with? Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, the first time I went was, as you know, with my mother, who loves to travel. I was thinking about this earlier, and I think the time that I really, really fell in love with London was when I went by myself when we were in university. You know, it was my first big trip by myself anywhere. Just like being on my own and wandering around the city was so magical. It was like, I'd always dreamed of living here. And I think that was like, one of the times where I was like, oh my god, like, I can make my way around London. I could be one of these people. Like, I can take the tube by myself. It was like little gay, big city. Like, (laughs) you know, I was, (laughs) I was, I remember going to um, Soho, which is like the gay district and entertainment and shopping in like central London and going to a gay bar in like the middle of the day. I was like, it must've been like two or 3 p.m. And I just went in and got a, I think I got a glass of white wine to sit out on the terrace by myself, just having a white wine. That is and classic Phil Max circa like I know. university years, <laughs> Phil in the white wine. Oh my God. I was blood type PG, Pinot Grigio. <laughs> like, honestly, like you could have corked me. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just like sitting there and, you know, there are so few 
places in the world, I think, where, you know, as kind of international and like open as Soho London is, you know, it's just, it's this crossroads where Chinatown is two blocks away, the West End where all of the, the plays are like, you know, around the corner. And of course, it's just so gay and open and like it's just this historic part of London for nightlife and yeah it was just so eye-opening because you know coming from at that point we were already living in Montreal and Montreal is great and very cosmopolitan and I love it but it's just the scale of Montreal compared to London is not even comparable I just like so vividly remember sitting there and being like this this works for me I really like this And I feel like you're also tapping into this thing that I think like also attracted me to travel and also attracted me to like moving abroad to Venice. It's that I felt this like sense of independence there that I'd never experienced at home because at home, like even if you live alone, you're in university, like that's a pretty independent life, but you still have like your family, your friends, your community within arm's reach. But like when I moved to Venice, it was like, oh, I'm really on my own now. Like I'm truly on my own. It sounds like going to London for the first time by yourself was a similar experience. Yeah, like I'd always really envied that about you, how you were like such like a go-getter and like you would travel just on your own and just like you just up and go and you'd be places. And I was like, I want to do that too. You did do that. I did. <laughs> You're doing it right now. Okay, well, you've been living now in London for three years, which is wild because it feels like literally just yesterday that you brought up to me that you wanted to move there. And I remember it because we were in Scotland. I was coming home from Asia and you and I decided to meet in Scotland and travel around. And on that trip, you told me that you were thinking about moving to London. Obviously, I was not a fan of the idea because I was like, I'm coming home now, like, so that we can hang out. And now you're saying you want to live in another country. But anyways, here we are. How did you come to the decision, though? Like, what was that process like of thinking about it, but then, like, moving into full commitment, like, I'm going to move there? I think at the time, I was in a relationship that I think I very much loved who I was with, but I knew that if I wanted to do this, I'd have to do it sooner or later. And, like, he was in Montreal for the long haul, and I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, like, I need to do it. And, like, I was like, okay, you know what, like, things are not where I want them to be here. And I was looking around Montreal. And I, at that point was, my career had been really good as a freelancer. And I was like, you know what, like, I finally feel like I have the confidence to like, I feel like I can like, I can really do this on my own now. I had the financial means, I was like, emotionally there. And at that point, I'd lived in Montreal for 10 years. I knew Montreal, like the back of my hand, I there was like nowhere that I wanted to work in Montreal anymore either. I was like, I had this like insane pipe dream that I wanted to work in luxury fashion in anywhere. And I was like, okay, basically there are like two places that I could go easily, which would have been London and Paris. And I was like, you know what? Like, fuck it. Let's go to London. Let's just do it. And it was on that trip where I was like, oh my God. Okay. I need to like start thinking this way. So after I left you in Edinburgh I took the train down and came and stayed with my friend Alex she was already living here doing her master's and had started working here and I was like oh my god I need to move to London can we move in together please (laughs) she was like okay and I was like give me a year I'm gonna figure it out on my end and then 
I'll be here in a year. And that's what happened. It took me exactly 12 months to get all the paperwork in order, break it to my ex that I was leaving, (laughs) to find someone to take care of my cat, who is you. (laughs) I hate the term immigrant because my fam I come from a family of immigrants. Um, And I don't feel like an immigrant here because there's not like, I don't have like the same level of like struggle that I think I personally associate with immigration. I see myself as an expat here. Mm. An immigrant, that's like sometimes a forced choice, whereas moving to London for you was an elective choice. Absolutely. There was no hardship behind me, you know? It was going from one privileged Western country to another. It all worked out. It did. And you never came back to my disdain. (laughs) I never came back. Well, also, though, that is like, I would have come back a lot more last year had it not been for um, the situation we all find ourselves in. (laughs) Yeah, let's not say the cursed word. Um, Yeah, the collective psychosis that we all share. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so I know you were really excited and like, when I reflect on all our conversations leading up to you moving to London, it seemed like you were mostly feeling like excitement about the future, but I'm sure like there were moments of fear or like questioning. Was there any fear? And like, if there was, can you describe what it felt like and how that might've impacted like your ability to make this big life decision? I think there was a lot of fear going into it. I think there was, when I came over here, I was freelancing still and I was like how am I going to get clients on on the British side because I didn't really have that big of a professional network and thankfully you know the world is structured the way it's structured now and a lot of people here who are from Montreal knew people that I knew in Montreal and so that network was able to extend and take care of me here and it actually really worked out. I'm eternally grateful actually for all the years that I was in Montreal because it was like that community continues to benefit me to this day. Would you say that was your biggest fear, like the the worry about whether you'd be able to find work then? Yeah, absolutely. But also meaningful work, you know, like you don't want to come to a city like this and not kind of pursue, like I wanted to pursue the dream that I came here for, which was to work in luxury fashion, ideally with a sustainable slant. And, you know, through a series of like hard work and good fortune that really worked out for me. But up until I got the job, it was like very touch and go. I was like constantly stressed about like, you know, like whether I'd be able to like find a job that actually like made it worthwhile to move here. Mm-hmm. Um, because like otherwise I would have just like come home and kind of felt like I'd been a bit of a failure. I think that's actually what makes it so um like this is where I really admire you because whenever I've gone abroad, especially when I've gone to live abroad, it's just been to like to live abroad. I don't go right. with any like particular goal. Whereas you really like set a goal and a path for yourself in London. Like it wasn't just to live in London. It was to live in London and accomplish something career-wise, like something very specific. And you did manage that, which is incredible. But I think it's also like there's this fear of change because like what you're saying too is you had like all the stability and security in Montreal. You had a partner and Um, great clients and a whole community and going to London meant leaving all of that behind, even if it was like potentially temporarily. And I think that's the fear, like the fear of change is what holds a lot of people back from these kinds of decisions. So obviously that was a fear that you had, but how did you cope with it and overcome it? 
Um, I actually really think that a lot of it has to do with just technology being where it is today. We talk all the time or we like message at least, you know, and it's like all of the all of the people who like are closest to me, I can talk to at least on a semi-regular basis. I think I knew that going over here that I would still have the people who matter most in my life on like a regular basis in some capacity. It was a leap of faith for sure eventually like I formed community and I truly think actually that like at least in my experience like it takes two years to really feel settled into a place give a place at least two years before you decide if you want to like stay or leave because like if at like the two-year point then you're still not feeling in it then like fine but like in my experience it takes a while to really build that like sense of community right and what would you say like feeling settled feels like like how does that feeling separate itself from the two years of not feeling settled so feeling settled to me is it is being able to walk out of my flat and know where I'm going to get my coffee where I'm going to get my favorite groceries where I'm going to pick up a book it's being able to text someone in my phone day of and be like hey are you free do you want to grab like do you want to go for a walk it's knowing the city not just as a series of pockets around tube stations but as an interconnected series of streets, I can get from point A to point B. It's not just a bunch of islands of knowledge, you know? Like, and I think once you've lived somewhere for two years, you can kind of, you connect the dots a lot more easily. Whereas for a while it was like, especially if you take like any underground form of transportation or a train or whatever, like you just appear places, you know? Like you get out of the station and it's just like, ah, like I'm in Notting Hill all of a sudden, you know? (laughs) Little portals. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's literally just like, you like go and you sit in like this like awful little contraption for like 15 minutes and all of a sudden you're on like a, you know another part of London. I remember when I moved to Toronto, my roommate at the time was like we'd been there maybe 2 or 3 months and we would go everywhere together and one day she asked me how I knew how to get places intuitively and she always got around by subway. I always got around by bike. I cycled everywhere. And I really, I told her, I was like, I think it's because I cycle everywhere, which forces me to learn how the streets intersect and the layout of a city in a way that taking public transport does not. So I like really swear by that. Like every time I've moved to a new city, I get around by bike because it really helps you to learn like where everything is. I could not agree more. I used to bike everywhere in Toronto because I was like living on that like student budget half the time too. And I was like, I'm not taking the subway. I'll just bike. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember when I moved to the Netherlands to study there, um, the first day in class, a professor like gave this little speech to us about um, culture shock and it was a whole class of international students. So he was explaining that we experience culture shock when we move to a new place, but it doesn't happen right away. His theory that he shared was that the first few weeks or months, you feel like very enamored because everything is new and like you're discovering new things every single day, whether that's like a new coffee shop or a new language. Um, But then eventually you begin to see cracks. You start to notice things that are different, things that you disagree with or don't like. And I can confirm that this happened to me in the Netherlands. The longer I spent there, the more aware I became of things that were different from home. And sometimes those things frustrated me. The thing I remember most is that 
Dutch people are very blunt communicators, which can be very tough to navigate if you are Canadian, because as you know, we are super passive communicators. We love to say sorry. So sometimes Dutch people would just say very blunt things to me that threw me off. And I guess like that frustration that I felt was like a light version of culture shock. So I wanted to ask if you've experienced this in London. Are there any things that like have gone from like, oh, this is so amazing and cool and new to like things that frustrate you? That is so fun. It is so true that like as Canadians, we see ourselves as very passive communicators. And I think in comparison to Americans, we really are. But here, Brits are always like, oh, you Canadians are so much more direct because Brits are so passive. Like they're so, so, so like circling the drain on making a point. It is like... (laughs) It's an incredibly indirect culture of communication here in general, obviously. Yeah, I would say like that doesn't really bother me because I'm still a very passive communicator myself. I'm like, okay, fine. Like we can we can talk about this for five minutes until we get to our point. Don't worry, I've got time. I think we're quite fortunate when Canadians do come to the UK to live because our culture is not especially different than than the British one in a lot of ways. Like just like little little weird things in day to day life, like little cultural differences that I really miss about Canada are like oh god I miss like like a pharmacy grocery store combo, like a pharma pre or a shoppers drug mart whatever you know like oh yeah they don't have that in Europe no they're so rare like they have them here in like north basically North American style like grocery stores or whatever i'm like oh, i missed like yeah like a giant loblaws like i want to go in and get lost i want like 60 kinds of cookies i want all of the president's choice i want the choices <laughs> <laughs> whereas here it's like the grocery stores are like just these like teeny tiny things and all of the weirdly all of the produce here is wrapped in plastic you know how like in canada we have a more market style where it's like it's just like a pile of lemons Whereas here, it's like everything comes like prepackaged in little plastic bags. That's strange. Yeah. I do think it is like that, I think, in a lot of places in Europe now that I think about it. Mm. But it is like very wasteful. Like I do find there's like a lot of, like when I empty my garbage bin, it's like full of these like little plastic wrappers. Stuff, it's weird. But like in general, I find actually like the day-to-day like cultural nuances are, it was quite a seamless move. Yeah, I guess it also helps that there's no language barrier. Huge. Yeah, I that is like a huge point of privilege coming here from like an English speaking country is like, I mean, like, the worst that can happen as like a native English speaker is you go to Scotland and it's like, oh, can you say that again? <laughs> I remember. One thing I wanted to ask you was, do you ever get asked where you're from? All the time. All the time. And people often will assume that, like, I'm American or that I am, you know, that, like, I went to international school and I'm from Asia or Latina or something. And, like, I had someone on Grindr the other day say, hello. And then when I didn't respond, he said, hola. <laughs> when I didn't respond, he said, ni hao. What? And I was like, okay, a little casual racism, but it's things like that where I think it's just, like, it's such, like, an international city, too, that, like... People are always like either like politely or impolitely trying to guess where you're from or like what your ethnic background is. But it's fine. Like, I mean, like 
it is a lot of the time though people will be like like politer people will be like oh are you american or canadian whereas like a lot of people would just like assume you're american i know it's happened to me as well like obviously especially in asia i found that people just generally and i think i've actually learned like in a lot of part, parts of the world when people say america they actually do mean canada as well like they're saying north america they're not necessarily saying like you're from the us they just mean like that continent but i guess like the difference is i never get questioned about my ethnicity and so i'm sure like it varies between the questions about ethnicity or like gen- genuine questions about like actually just what country do you hail from Exactly. And I mean, it's like the like curse of like, being a person of color sometimes is like, you know, when you live here, it's like, people be like, Oh, where are you from? And like, like Canada, they'll be like, No, no, no. Where are you really from? And I'm like, uh, uh. Yeah, it's like the follow up question that white people never have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's fine. It's like, it's very benign, but it's quite annoying. <laughs> So, okay, I was describing at the top of this episode how I fell so in love with Venice, um, so much so that I ended up living there. And it's funny because a lot of people think that my diehard love for Venice is really outrageous because a lot of people don't perceive it the same way I do. I have seen a lot of tourists complain about Venice, like that the canals stink and the city is overcrowded and everything's overpriced, which like is true but despite that i never fell out of out of love with venice like there were just i think especially living there because i was able to access like pockets of the city that tourists never really discover that really grew my love of the city and i would say like my romanticization of it like never went away so i wanted to ask you romanticized london before living there but now that you live there would you say that you f- still feel that magic or has it shifted into something else i do i still feel that magic but it's different now before like i was saying it used to be the magic lay in places like soho that were that were so international and so cosmopolitan and just like you know like these kind of like like scenic parts of London that you you see in cinema and in books and in coffee table books now like the magic that I find in London and like what keeps me like constantly in love with it is like actually most of the time nowhere near central London because central London is heinous and in a pre and post COVID world it is like it's just full of tourists it's like it's just so busy all the time. And once you've done all the things, you don't really need to be there, you know? But, you know, the things that, like, really keep me in love with London are, like, like it's such an incredible city of parks. You know, where I live in East London, there's three huge parks close to me. Um, Hagerston, Victoria Park, and London Fields. And during lockdown, it was such a blessing. And so it's, like, you know, it's things like that. or it's um, it's just being able to like walk around to, you know, stroll into a museum for free when those are open to, you know, run, like <laughs> be like walking down the street and to like incidentally like see someone who you've seen on like Netflix or like in a TV show or a film or something, you know, just like the proximity of incredible, you know, working in fashion, just like being around like these incredible schools that are here. And so it's like not even necessarily like 
the huge brands that exist here, like us or Burberry or some of the other big houses or stores like Selfridges. But it's actually just like having this incredible student base, especially again, where I live in East London, where it's like, I'll be walking down the street and I'll see like the next generation of cool kids, like walking, like walking around and like, like what looks to me to be like the future. <laughs> like, it's like, wow, that is that is gay fashion from space. Like I like I am no longer cool. I am old. Please just allow me five minutes to lay down and die. Like, okay, anyone who looks at your Instagram and I Alpaca Pals, you must all go and look at Philip's Instagram and you will wholly disagree with what he's just claimed. Oh now, compared to some of these kids, I look like the bargain bin, like a mobile sales rack compared to these like <laughs> these kids who are just so on the pulse but that's like such an amazing part of living here is like you know you get to see these kids just out in the wild being experimental and like you know you never know which one you'll like incidentally meet on like a night out or like maybe go on a date with and you know they'll be the next daniel Lee at bottega Veneta or something you know or the next stella mccartney or whatever like it's you never know so i think that part that part keeps me really interested as well it's like kind of this like this upswell of energy in fashion here. And also like, you know, I work in sustainable fashion and like, I do think that London is like a real hub for it too. It is being proximate to just the thinkers and the people who are doing things in the field that I just never could have had access to in Canada. Like we just don't have that kind of infrastructure back home, like that kind of like cultural infrastructure, whether it be like support for the fashion industry, whether it be fashion schools, there's just like, nothing like that back home. It sounds like your perception has kind of shifted from like the perception of a tourist to the perception of like someone who's there to really like culturally engage with the arts of that city and like more like the local perception. So I looked it up because I needed to know. Um, London attracts close to 20 million visitors every year. Note, this is pre-pandemic. And part of that is because it offers like one of the planet's greatest concentrations of cultural attractions. So like you said, that's like central London. And actually, like I have told you, this is my hot take. I did not like London. I've been there one time. I spent like all of my time in central London and my impression was not good because I think if people listen to the show a lot. They know I don't like crowded cities that are experiencing over-tourism. And that was my impression of it. I just didn't like that there were crowds like literally everywhere I went. It was like constantly standing in lines. And I don't know, it, it didn't make for a nice experience. But like you say, I think you need to be able to experience that because of course like those cultural attractions have meaning are an important part of the city but being able to like look beyond that and experience other parts of the city I think is really important as well and really changes your perception of a place no absolutely if and when you come to visit I would take you out on the out of central London because it is it's all museums it's all the shows all that sort of thing which are great but I think like the real magic of London is like yeah kind of the everyday like lived experiences like I live you know in East London there's a huge Muslim population and it's really beautiful on like Fridays if you have your windows open in the summer you can hear the singing from the mosque and I like I think like I wonder how much that is changing too with like Airbnb like obviously this is not like a hot take but it's like Airbnb is moving people into cooler neighborhoods you know kind of like obviously we're all chasing that quote-unquote local experience 
I think our generation really chases that quote unquote local experience, which is like always what I find when I like, you know, when I went to Mexico City last February, it was like we stayed in um, Condesa and, you know, it is like a very like neighborhoody, but very hip neighborhood too. And so it's like kind of like, you know, it'd be like we had like our cafe while we were there that was cute and close by that we'd get coffee every morning and swing by the local bakery that apparently has like the best pastries, but then also go like into central Mexico city to like go to the museum. I think it's Airbnb. And also there's been an explosion of just like access to information online. Like there are now like countless bloggers, there's Instagram, TikTok, like there's so many avenues for accessing information that like, wouldn't necessarily be in like your classic guidebook. Like you can actually just Google like what is a local place I can visit in Mexico City or like a neighborhood that's like off the beaten track. And prior to like the explosion of the internet, that wasn't as accessible, that kind of information. Yeah. Like I will fully Google hipster neighborhood X city on a culture trip. <laughs> like every time I travel, I'm like, I'll do it. <laughs> so back in season one of the show which feels like years ago because it actually was was years ago um we interviewed a friend of mine annabelle who lives in toronto but she moved to toronto from mexico city And we talked about her experience of homesickness, um, which is described generally as a feeling of longing for one's home during a period of absence from it. This is a pretty basic description. And I think, you know, homesickness feels different for people in like very different ways. So I wanted to ask if that's something you've been experiencing at all and what it feels like for you. Yeah, I mean, oh God, I'm actually, I think COVID has like really reinforced my homesickness because I'm so used to coming back to Canada twice a year. And this is the first, like I spent the entirety of 2020 outside of Canada. You know, when I think of home, I generally think of Montreal. You know, like we both technically grew up in Ottawa, but I don't think either of us ever really identified with it that strongly. I think when I when I get homesick, I find myself just like going on to like news websites, like Canadian news websites. Like I'll go on to CBC Montreal and just see what's happening in the city or like you know go on like Montreal Twitter accounts or Montreal Instagram accounts and like just like kind of just try and get like a feel for what's like happening yeah I understand that okay when I was traveling in Asia and similarly like I will say we both grew up in Ottawa but I feel definitely now like Toronto is home because I've just lived there so long and living in a place as an adult it kind of like replaces that feeling of home I find like I just I feel like I have roots there in a way that I no longer have to the city I grew up in which was Ottawa but yeah so when we were in Asia I used to do something similar I would look at news but I would also go on to Facebook into Toronto specific groups just to see like what Toronto drama was happening because you know there's always something like some uproar about like something like cultural in Toronto and I would just go to those Facebook groups and I would take solace in knowing that like Toronto is still Toronto there are still people arguing over like this sign that this bakery put in the window just little things like that made me feel so much better oh yes 
but I like have the same thing where it's like obviously in Montreal it's always the language issues right the Quebecois are always up to something <laughs> like but like current government just has like such like zed-list supervillain energy like <laughs> this whole yeah. like curfew and you're not allowed out even if you're homeless you have to follow the curfew and I'm like you guys are such <laughs> just like so petty and stupid and makes no sense but then I'm like it's Quebec it's Montreal who would have it any other way and that like that stuff makes me like that like helps alleviate my homesickness when I see things like that I'm like ah yes nothing has changed <laughs> But it's it's kind of funny. It's like the things that really bother us when we actually live there become the things that like remind us that it's still the same place and it like becomes a source of solace. Whereas like when you're actually living in Montreal, it's like kind of frustrating that there's all this like tension happening. Like, yeah, when it's not your like day to day lived reality, it takes on like this like patina of nostalgia. It's like, oh, but it's, but it's Montreal. So other than browsing the news are there any other things that you do to cope with homesickness um yeah i mean i like obviously other than like the things of like calling people and like pretty open channels communication i i have a chemical addiction to maple syrup (laughs) which is actually shockingly expensive in the uk it all comes from canada and it's like six pounds for like a little bottle which is like 10 Canadian dollars, but I buy it all the time. I buy it like I buy like a bottle a week. Like, okay, I will <laughs> I just, bring you, I'll bring you stock when I come to visit. Oh my God, please do. When I like, when I think of what an ingrate I was going to grocery stores in Montreal and just buying cans of it for like $6 and thinking, oh, this is so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, oh my god! Like next time I come, I'm gonna come with an empty suitcase. Next time I come back to Montreal, I just fill it. <laughs> um. Okay. So, what is your biggest piece of advice for someone who is thinking about or planning to move abroad? Are there any things that you wish that you had known? Um. I think that the biggest piece of advice that I could give is, and this is a bit of a cliche, but honestly, just do it. There will never be a better time. And it could definitely be a worse time as like the past year has shown. It seems really scary and intimidating at first, but you get there and you start to meet people and life goes on. I wish that someone had told me for like those years where I was kind of like, oh, should I do it? Should I not? Should I do it? Should I not? Like, I just wish that like someone had like been like, do it, commit to it, give yourself a year, plan it out. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's important to say like, you and I are both now 30 years old. I think a lot of people think that once you, especially when you like start your 30s, that like you've run out of time. And that is not true. Like, even if you are 30 or in your 30s or in your 40s or in your 50s and you have a career, but living abroad is something that you want to do, you can make that happen. And you have really proven that. Like, you can bring your career to a new place. Oh, thank you. No, and actually, I think that is really, that is really true in the sense that I, you know, like I said earlier, I'd, I'd had the great fortune of having great clients in Montreal. And I built like a really great community 
And I think I was so afraid of moving because I didn't want to lose that. But barring complete economic recession, like chances are you'll land somewhere and you'll be able to find something that could take you in like a whole new, a whole new direction or like have like the fortune that I've had of like somehow by some fluke landing my dream job, you know, like that never would have happened if I hadn't come here. Absolutely. Okay. So wrapping up, what is something that you have discovered in London that you recommend visitors go check out that they might not find on their classic London itinerary? This is post COVID, by the way, we're not, we're not suggesting that anyone <laughs> fly to London right now. <laughs> um, yeah, this is not the place to be right now. Um, <laughs> it is, um, you know, like, it's so funny, because like, I, I was thinking about this earlier and I was like, everything is in the guidebooks now. (laughs) Like because 20 million people come here a year, almost like everything is like online. Like anything that's kind of like fun and local to do is like in the guidebook now. I will say from from the perspective of someone who thinks that you should get out of central London, um, I would recommend coming to East London. Fun things to do in East London are the Columbia Road Flower Market on Sundays. In a non-COVID time, they have it every Sunday. And it's all of these really, really cockney flower vendors. Like the whole street closes down and it's just full of flower vendors. And it's become a bit touristy now too, because like obviously the blogs have gotten their hands on it. But like it truly is like an experience unlike any other. They just like to get your attention. They like will call you like a name or something. Uh, especially like they're like my flatmate. We like went and they called it. What did they call it? Tiddlywinks or something? <laughs> like oi, tiddlywinks. <laughs> and like they're just like it's just like such like a unique East London experience. Make like a concerted effort to do like a different neighborhood outside of Central London. You know, if you really want to see how London is, like, get out of Central. Your description of this flower market just makes me think of the final scenes of Midsummer. I've not seen Midsummer. What? No. <laughs> it's too gory for me. I can't unsee things. I'm too old. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's it. That's all my questions for you, Philip. So, Phil, where can people find you if they'd like to follow along your life in London? Uh, well, if people would like to follow me on Instagram or my Twitter, which is really just like a platform for me to comment on The Real Housewives, um, <laughs> uh, you can follow me at Philip M. Mac, which is P H I L I P M M A K. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lohr. I hope this episode was as fun for you as it was for me. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. And I hope you all get to all pack your bags safely and soon. Bye.